Thanks for listening to The Rest is Politics. Sign up to The Rest is Politics Plus to enjoy ad-free listening, receive a weekly newsletter, join our members' chat room and gain early access to live show tickets. Just go to therestispolitics.com. That's therestispolitics.com. Welcome to the fourth episode of The Rest is Politics Question Time with me, Rory Stewart. And me, Alistair Campbell which has landed in your podcast feeds on the sixth anniversary of the Brexit referendum. What are you doing to celebrate the occasion, Alistair? Uh, Well, I am reading The New European, whose front page lists all the Brexit benefits in full. It's a blank white page. And then reading the six pages inside about all the things that have gone wrong. What about you? Well, one of the things I keep thinking about, obviously, obsessively, is that... There were options for a better Brexit. I mean, I think that a customs union solution, even the kind of backstop solution that Theresa May proposed, would have been much, much easier for British businesses dealing with Europe. Mm. And most importantly of all, would have avoided the problems that we're now facing around borders in the Irish Sea and the Irish border, Mm. because by keeping us in a single customs territory, there wouldn't have been need for those customs checks. There might have had to be some checks, um, and the stuff that we need to talk about, phytosanitary checks, which I think is mm. an important thing to try to get right. Let me say something to make you happy, okay? If I had felt back in the day that the choice was not between a second referendum and whatever Theresa May was proposing, but was between what Theresa May was proposing and what we now have, I would happily have backed what Theresa May was proposing. Does that make you happy? It definitely makes me very happy. Um, it, it raises the question, though, because it, it's an interesting point, because one of the things that obviously people like me were trying to do then is to say to people who were trashing Theresa May's deal and pushing for a second referendum, I was trying to say, you're not going to get a second referendum. What you're going to do is you're going to give power to the ERG and end up with a much harder Brexit and Boris Johnson in power. Mm. But I never managed to convince anyone of that. Do you, Have you got any sense on why I couldn't convince him. Was it that our messaging was wrong or people weren't just weren't ready to hear that message? Uh, I think that, well, let me just take something like myself. I was, I genuinely believed that it was a democratic thing to do to allow people to have a, a vote on the final say. That was, I didn't buy the line, it was anti-democratic. It happened in plenty of other countries where people sort of say, well, here's the general principle. Now we've got the detail, let's take a proper look. And I genuinely believed, and I, I never made any bones about this, that that was the best way to stop Brexit. Um, but so I think it, maybe we're back to the point we talked about lots is that people were very in very, very fixed, entrenched positions. And let's just leave Brexit now because people are going to talk so much about this. I want to ask you, Rory, a very, very personal question. And this is a question that's come from Ruth Smith. Rory mentions in two of his books his sister Fiona, who I've met, who has Down syndrome. I'd love to know how his sister influenced him and his politics and what changes in society he would like to see to improve the lives of people with Down syndrome. Well, I think that the first thing is that it had a, obviously a huge influence on me. Fiona's just four years younger than me. She's my only full sister. I've got two older half-sisters, but they're much older than me from my father's first marriage. Uh, so I, I grew up with Fiona. We shared a bunk bed. We shared a bedroom. And um, it's it. she is the most wonderful, loving sister to have, but she has Down syndrome. Um, she, Her life has changed dramatically, and part of that actually is a tribute to, to all kinds of governments and what they've introduced. For example, she really learnt to write properly in her 30s. 
Um, and that's something that people didn't predict would happen. There's been huge transformations in, in life expectancy also with people with Down syndrome. I remember one of the most terrifying things when I was eight or nine as a very unpleasant boy at school trying to tell me that, you know, my sister wasn't going to live very long, which I think was true, that the life expectancy was was bad in those days. I, I'd also, having lived in other countries, say that there are so many things horribly wrong in Britain. Um, I think we've talked about prisons. We've talked about that the lack of support for people with addiction issues. We've talked about the scandal of our probation services, the scandal of the way we treat poor elderly people. But I do think that Britain has got much, much better in the way that mm. it treats people like Fiona. And the support that we've received genuinely we, is extraordinary. Mm. And she has been helped to get a job and supported very well into that. And that gives her immense pride. She works in an old people's home as... Mm. Uh, as a waitress. And I think it, it is wonderful. I think I'm, mm. I'm really proud of what the government's done. What, what, when, you, when we came to your house to, to do the, the one face-to-face episode we've recorded, um, and, you, and, you, and Fiona was around and very, very kind of much part of everything that was going on and big character and so forth, but of course your mother's there. You know, I don't want to sort of predict the demise of your mother, but how much of a worry is that when when I sense that Fiona is very, not dependent on your mother, but that's an incredibly important relationship. It's a very, very important relationship, as it was with my father. And I think that that is something to think about. And I think we'll find a way of, of including Fiona in our own family. Mm. Um, mm. But she, she is, um, as you say, she's, she's extraordinary. And, um, and in some ways, she's also been helped by modern technology. She, she loves... Uh, Social media, although I sometimes worry a little bit about the kind of social media she's going on. She loves, obviously, television. She loves music, um, as well as other things. I mean, she also loves animals and nature. And um, One of the controversies, though, which, which has been something that we've had to go through, which is a policy question, is that in the past, when she was going for jobs, uh, she could go for jobs and she could go in below the minimum wage. Mm. And in the early days, I think the Scottish government made up the difference between the salaries. But now, for, for good reasons, equality campaigners campaign very hard to make sure that she gets the same wage as other people. Mm. But I do sometimes worry about that because it does mean that it's, it's difficult. She's not quite as quick as other people working in the kitchen. She's not. Um, and therefore, I do worry sometimes that that may be an example. And I'm going to get in trouble saying this, but, but having been trying to look for a job for her recently, she lost the job recently. That that it is it is a bit of a challenge convincing particularly small businesses to take on somebody if they could get somebody who's much quicker for the for the same wage. Mm. Well, I really enjoyed meeting her. I thought she was absolutely fantastic, and you should be very very proud of her. Ian Petricelli, Rory, if you could be number two to any world leader over the ages, who might that be? In my case, definitely Alexander the Great, which gives me a chance to give it back to you. I would say Lincoln. Lincoln. I now, what would, it, what, would it, what would it be like working for Lincoln? What's your sense of him as a man? I probably wouldn't be that good because, of course, he's a massive depressive and I'm a yeah. massive depressive. <laughs> well, well, one of my favorite, I think that's one of the reasons I really like him is that he achieved so much. I think his depression was way worse than mine. Everything I read about him, there was a wonderful quote from his law partner, uh, William Harnden. I think I told you this before. He wrote a book about law, Lincoln, the lawyer. 
and he started it with the words, melancholy dripped from him with every step he took. <laughs> but he just, I just think to have achieved as much as he did in such difficult circumstances and to have managed so many curious and difficult relationships. See, I'd love to have watched him. Of all the people that we don't have film of, he's the one that I think... God, he is extraordinary, he's... isn't he? And he's, he's the one politician that it's very, very difficult not to admire in every way because he's admirable. Yes, because in the end, what he did was morally extraordinary, mm. uh, which is event, essentially he emancipated uh, millions upon millions of people. But of course, he was also somebody who had to deal with a very difficult political context in which he changed his position on slavery. He had to manage a whole party, had to manage people through a bloody war. He did so with oratory, integrity. I mean, if you're looking for somebody to teach the ideal politician, it's so difficult mm. to think of anyone better, isn't it? And also, Alexander the Great, um, if Boris Johnson's listening to our podcast, he'll assume that you're talking about him because of course, that's, <laughs> that's, his, yeah. that's his real I, name. I, I want to wish to put on the record that, that he is really <laughs> not like Alexander the Great, and Alexander the Great would be really <laughs> depressed and appalled if he encountered him. Okay, question two from Lewis. My question is to both Alistair and Rory. If you each had the whole world's attention for 30 seconds... What would you say, Alistair? Oh, my God. 30 seconds. Right. I would say the world is a remarkable place that we've got so many massive, great, wonderful things happening for us, but we're kind of screwing it up. And I think part of the problem is our politics and populism. And I actually want young people to rise up against the older generations, sweep them away and take control. That's what I'd say. It's beautiful. And that was in the third side 30 seconds. Blimey. All I could think of, I was terrified by this question. All, all, all I was going to offer if I had the world's attention for 30 seconds is that if you've lost something, it, it's almost always where you thought it was. You just... <laughs> <laughs> That's really good. So where do I think my asthma inhaler was? Because I can't find no, it. The answer, Alistair, the answer, I, I, I think this is absolutely, this is my greatest philosophical insight. You always got to go back and search really carefully in the place you've already searched, but didn't look in carefully enough. So often what we do is we start by thinking, okay, I know where it is. We look there, but we don't quite look carefully enough. And then we move on too quickly. I think mine was a little bit more elevated than yours. <laughs> Here's okay, I've one. got another no. one. Another way. Go I've got one more go for on, thirty go on. seconds, right? Go on. Um, if someone's got the hiccups, if you if you bet them fifty quid, if they hiccup again, they stop hiccupping. No, I don't buy that. You don't buy that. Well, I'm going to try, that. I'm gonna try no. that on let you. Me, let me try. Let, let, let me let me okay. try one on you. Okay. Um, it's a grammatical thing. Is it correct to say the yolk of the egg is white, or is it? The yolk of the egg are white. Well, the yolk of the egg is yellow. Well done. Thank you. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> Most okay. people fall for it. Now, listen, okay. I want one. You've asked two in a row. Nigel Inglebrow, yep. I want your thoughts on the Banks Carol Cadwallader case and why wasn't there more coverage of all the, the meetings with Russians and the influence on Brexit, etc.? Well, I think the first thing is, uh, my aunt, I haven't been following the case closely, but she has been exonerated, hasn't she? Yeah. which is a great tribute to an investigative journalist who took a huge risk and put an immense amount of energy into following this up. Is this something you've been following more closely? Tell us a little bit about it. I've been following it very, very closely because my Fiona, the Fiona in my life, her brother, Gavin, was Carol Cadwallader's QC. 
Right. Um, and so, and I've not been able to talk to him because Gavin, unlike Boris Johnson and Suella Braverman, the worst attorney general in history, uh, and I've got a story about her, by the way, but um, don't l- let me go without telling you it. Um, but so Gavin is very, very proper. So he doesn't talk to anybody outside, you know, the case. So I've been just sort of following it like an ordinary member of the public, uh, trying offering sort of any moral support I can to Carol Cadwalder. And the other, there was so much kind of... I mean, they, you know, not to put too fine a point on her, they, they pretty much set out utterly to destroy her as an individual, not the papers she was writing for, uh, but as an individual. And uh, I'm very, 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 very pleased that she won. I, I wanted to say one quick thing, um, which I owe you. you. You teased me last week's question time about mm. the fact that you think I've been being chippy about your friend Tony Blair. Mm. And I must say, since that, I've met him. And ah. I... I was I saw him twice last week, and I was incredibly. Is this because you were speaking? You were speaking at his conference, aren't you? Speaking at his conference, incredibly, incredibly charmed. And mm. one of the things that struck me about him, despite all my grumbles about him, and I've still got a lot, lot of anger about this, uh, him teaming up with Boris Johnson against mm. Theresa May's deal. He didn't team up. He didn't team up. Carry on. He, did, he said this speech, in which no, he no, said, he "I'm going to form, a, I'm going to form an unholy alliance with Boris Johnson." Anyway, I'm still angry about that. Anyway, the good thing I was trying to get to the positive thing. Um, is that unlike almost any other politician I've met, he remains much, much better at listening. So he'd said to me that there are three great revolutions we've got to come to terms with, environmental revolution, technological revolution, Brexit. And I said, I think there's a fourth thing, which has actually changed with the invasion of Ukraine, which is the collapse of the global trading system. Mm, mm. And unlike almost any other politician I've met, he took the idea, he played with it, he made it more interesting he reconceptualized it. He threw it back at me. And I thought he was quite a class act. And also, he I don't know whether he listens to the podcast. Obviously, he picked up on the fact that you and I had been rowing on this podcast. That's because I sent him Vasco's film. And he phoned <laughs> me up and he said, he said, what are you doing? He said, I told, I told Rory that forget that whole calm, nice, polite thing. When he goes, he goes. <laughs> so obviously you'd been defending him very, very strongly, but he, he very sweetly also sympathised with me, despite the fact that you were defending him so well. Yeah. I just wanted to return to Suella Braverman. I, I, when I was in Dublin last week, I bumped into, on the way back, I bumped into a, a QC who uh, does a lot of, and we talked about the Treasury Devil, who does the A-list cases for the government. Suella Braverman, when she was a lawyer, before she became a sort of, you know, wholly politicised, the worst attorney general in history, she um, she was a C-list lawyer for the attorney general. She was on the attorney general C-list, which meant she got the kind of lower order cases. And he said to me, uh, she was hired twice by two separate departments and she was never hired again by either. So there's Suella. I want to sh- give a shout out to Nicholas Webb because he was the guy who asked the question that I answered prematurely yesterday about the Welsh uh, elections. And the, but then I want, here's a good one for you, Rory, because you're sort of more into the agreeable disagreeing and all that stuff. Bernadette Trainer, she said, I've just been watching a video of you, i.e. me, arguing, debating with Nigel Farage in 2019. And you actually seem quite amenably disposed towards each other. Is it possible to separate out the personal and the political? I, I think it's, it's, it depends whether you think that somebody is fundamentally decent. I think if you think that somebody, in the end, you can see the moral energy and force of them, I think you can separate it out. If you can't, if the politics 
becomes, and I think this is often the problem that I felt when I was a conservative MP debating with the left, is that, as I think I've said it before, that often the people I was debating with assumed that I was fundamentally evil. And in that case, mm. you can't do it. Right. We'll take a quick break now and see you in a second. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. It was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts. So welcome back to The Rest is Politics Question Time with me, Rory Stewart. And me, Alistair Campbell. Right. I'm beginning with a very grand question by Abby Innes. How does non-utopian politics win against utopian politics? Does even a party with an abundance of common sense, morality and social purpose lose against an ethically unhinged politics that promises the moon and abides by no rules? Hmm. Well, it doesn't have to. It doesn't have to. When was the last utopian? I, 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 what's she trying to get at there? I think she's basically of... saying that, that uh, I, I think maybe utopian is the wrong framing of it. I think that promising the moon is one of but the does she, central... But does, she mean, but does she mean Boris Johnson or does she mean Yeah, Jeremy she Corbyn? means sort of Boris Johnson. She means Not Jeremy popular, Corbyn. Or Jeremy Corbyn. I think she means populist grand statements and how difficult mm. it is for the centre ground. I think she's having a go at the idea that maybe the centre ground is always doomed to fail and that people are more attracted by people who promise the moon and mm. abide by no rules. Well, I, 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 think that, I think that is a sort of phase that we're definitely in at the moment. Um, but I really do believe it will, it will go back. And I, and I want the, the kind of the Schultzes and the Macrons and for all the setbacks, I want them to keep on with that sense of look, let's try and keep politics serious and keep it rooted in the real world. Um, but it's a it's a it's a tricky one, and I, I look. I I also think we've talked about Keir Starmer a lot in the last couple of weeks. I mean, I do think he's got to 
to play to strengths. I mean, this thing about, you know, is he boring? Does he like charisma? I mean, you know, he's got to turn it to his advantage. Um, I do think people will be sick of this whole showmanship in politics, but I could be wrong. I could be wrong. I think Craig Brown, in your least favourite newspaper, The Daily Mail, actually made a very, very good argument in favour of Keir Starmer essentially being boring and staying boring and saying mm. that it's quite a welcome distraction. Um, I'm Talking to Twitter and, and Abby's question, I have also been thinking a little bit about this, the way in which Twitter encourages extremes. I was thinking about it last night because somebody had sent out a tweet which had been retweeted by lots of people I liked. It had been shared 1,500 times. Mm. And the person had said that uh, MPs had just got a £2,000 pay rise on their £80,000 salary. And little wonder there was an inflation when MPs were taking an over 20% pay rise. Mm. And of course, £2,000 and £8,000 is not 20%, right? It's it's just over 2%, not 20%. And yet it had been shared 1,500 times. And I, I had that thing, which must, I, I guess a lot of people feel, which is, given that this person is broadly speaking on my side, and this is being liked by a lot of people, I like, do I come in now and say, this is fake news? This is crazy, right? You're pointing out, you're claiming that MPs are taking a 20% pay rise it's not when true. they're not. And it's just not I th- true. I think, it would, I think it would be a useful use of two seconds of your time to have done that. I do. Right. Here's a great question from Danny Platt. What is the most unknown to the public, but most obvious to insiders thing about Downing Street? I'm going to go with the Queen's toilet. Go on, tell us about Queen's toilet. There is a toilet in Downing Street that is known <laughs> as the Queen's toilet because it was put in there for the Queen. Um, and it's called the Queen's toilet. And um, I have to say there have been occasions when in a bit of a rush, I've nipped into the Queen's toilet. Uh, is it, is, does it have like gold taps and stuff? There is no, there are no gold taps, but it's smarter than the other toilets. Um, Noel Gallagher confessed that he went in there as well when we we gave him a tour of number where, ten. Where, where is it? Does, does it look like a kind of? Do you throne? know when you you know upstairs yeah. from the cabinet yeah. room, right? Yeah. Upstairs from the cabinet room, there's some very nice yeah. pictures. I don't know what pictures yeah. Johnson's yeah. got, but there was some very nice pictures. Yeah. There. And there's a little thing when you come out of the green room. There's like three steps down. Yep, yeah. and it's and it's just on the right. Goodness. Yeah. Goodness. And is there a sign up saying only for Her Majesty the Queen? No. And I don't think the Queen ever used it because, of course, you know, it was just there in case she needed it. But, you know, the Queen being the Queen, she probably deals with all that stuff before she goes anywhere, doesn't she? Yeah, I suspect mm. so. I suspect yeah. so. All right. Judith Naylor, question five. Do top politicians, leaders normally have some expert body language coaching to help get their message across? Uh, I think some do. I think they look at it. Um, I remember once in opposition, Tony, we did a bit of a thing with him about how to stand, how to, he, and he didn't really go for it. He just thought this is sort of nonsense. Uh, but some do. And I thought, look, but how people, I think after this TV program I'm doing, I was telling them the other day, I may have told you this before, but tell us a, about the TV program. We don't know about the TV program. Tell us about your it's TV called, program. It's called Make Me Prime Minister. And it's, um, it's Saida Warsi, who you will know from your cabinet days. She and I are, putting 12 members of the public through their paces, they all think they can be prime minister. And it's quite interesting to, I'm not allowed to say too much, but it's very, very interesting. And by the way, they did, we do bring in experts for certain sessions. So if you, the next time you're in the country, if you want to come and have a look and you can be, you can be an expert. Um, no, I'm serious. We had, um, we've had all sorts of some of your friends down there. Um, but it's like, no, I, th- I think that I was telling them that there was this experiment in America where they showed two sets of, 
Have I told you this about two sets of 100 pictures to a, a random selection no, of people? No, haven't told us. No. And they basically said these are two sets. Each, each pairing has taken part in an election which has already happened. Who do you think, who do you think won? Yeah. They got 92% right. Oh, ow. Based That's on terrifying. What they yeah, That's terrifying. terrifying. So, so what, one of the answers, I think, one of the big differences, though, between UK and US politics is that very few British politicians would do things like body language coaching. We're pretty sort of scruffy and informal. And partly, um, we don't have the kind of money in our politics to pay for that unless you're a party leader. It's quite you're expensive. Right. But, but John, yeah. Johnson does the reverse, doesn't he? He does this sort of, I'm actually quite smart. I'm going to make myself look really scruffy. What's that about? Well, I think that's deeply appealing to people. I think people like the sense. I think part of his voters say, well, that's quite nice. You know, I don't really shave. I don't really brush my hair. I'm getting a bit fat. I don't tuck my shirt in. Maybe I could be prime minister. Mm-hmm. I tell you, I can spot those politicians who, you know, when you see them sort of suddenly doing jerky hand movements and this, like somebody's told them, you know, pointing is really shows strength and Opening your hands shows there's something in that, but it's got to look natural. My, the best, the, Clinton was brilliant. Clinton was brilliant at body language. I, I always felt when I took, um, when I was the chair of the Defence Committee and when I was in the Foreign Affairs Committee going to Washington, the amazing contrast between American and British politicians. The, the, the security guards at Congress and Senate couldn't actually believe we were politicians because all American <laughs> politicians are like these incredibly tall, they all wear. Stripy you know, red ties, ties, you know, white hair. shirts. Yeah. yeah. Um, and they all have to be over six foot tall. And we all turned up and we basically, you know, we're all sort of five foot six, five foot eight, <laughs> bit tubby, bit disheveled. And, and literally the security guards couldn't be convinced that we could possibly be members of parliament. What, um, do you remember that period when we kept having Tories? The most dramatic was Sajid Javid, but I think Johnson, Hancock, Rob, all doing that legs apart stance thing. Amazing, do you remember? Yeah. Yeah, the power stars. I mean, they, they all looked ridiculous. Yeah, that was really weird. That was a very strange. Do you remember what it was? It, essentially, their legs are far too wide apart. They stand in a weird A shape. And I'll tell you the other thing. John, Johnson does this thing with his tie sort of down below his groin. So, so, <laughs> sorry, the talk of Johnson's groin. Yeah, yeah, I, the, the, my earpiece yeah. fell out. Yeah. Um, the tie below his groin and his legs, particularly I've noticed this when he's being interviewed by women, with his legs so far apart, he's like a sumo wrestler. Yeah, yeah. It's, What's it's, that it's, about? Yeah, well, I think he must, at some point in his youth, um, decided this was somehow attractive. But it's not. Um, <laughs> last question. Um, Hugh, this is a pretty serious one, but maybe a good one to finish on. Given the climate crisis is an existential threat to global stability, why do you not talk about it on your podcast? Well, we do. We have talked about the climate crisis, but but in a sort of we've talked about it. We talked about it, I guess, in relation to the whole, you know, us traveling so much. And maybe we haven't addressed it. Maybe we should, as a future point, do a whole thing on the climate crisis. I do think, by the way, one thing I was going to raise, and I now will raise it because you've raised that question. I was going to raise this yesterday. Are you aware? And I bet most of our listeners aren't that there was an, there was a meeting of the of the COP in Bonn last week, and now. If you remember, when Glasgow happened, every, nobody was talking about anything else and all these great promises were made. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and the Bonn meeting apparently was incredibly bad-tempered. Yeah. It was the poor countries telling the rich countries, you're all just words. Yeah. And because of Ukraine and because of all the other stuff happening, it's just vanished. And that is very, very, very and, worrying. And it's happening very quickly. So you're completely right. And we're looking at it. So there's a horrifying floods in Bangladesh, some of the worst ever. 
Somalia is going about to go into its fifth year of drought with millions of people uh, starving. And we're into a very, very complicated world where suddenly people are beginning to sense because of Ukraine, because of the problems on oil and gas, because of the food shortages, they're beginning to see much more directly the kind of sacrifices that will be involved and the politics that will be involved in doing the mm. transition in a way that we didn't probably just, just a year ago. I, I remember when I was running for London mayor, the head of the taxi drivers union saying to me, I can tell you how you're going, you can win this election. I guarantee it. All you've got to do is go to outer London and point out to people that Sadiq Khan, if they vote for him, is going to cost them £65 a week to drive their car because of the congestion charge, and you'll win it. Now, of course, I didn't do it because I agreed with him on what he was trying to do on tailpipes emissions and carbon emissions. But it was a sudden reminder that we haven't begun to see the politics of opposition yet because we haven't really begun to take the real costs that will be involved mm. in the transition for 2035, 2040. Very quick one on the strikes. Martin Edwards, why did the RMT choose this week of all weeks with the two by-elections to have their strikes? Uh, sure, it just means that, surely it just means that Starmer is caught in double crosshairs. Um, I think it shows, actually, the trade unions don't necessarily just see themselves as being about the Labour Party. Um, so, so that's that. Can I give a final, final shout-out, Rory, to somebody called Robert Goodall? Go on, then. He actually, he actually came to the recording of one of these episodes of this TV programme, and he says... Were you very impressed when I told you that I managed to get into both of your live shows with Rory Stewart? I think we were impressed by that, weren't we? Very, very, very impressed. Thank you well all very done, much. Well done, Robert. Well done. And <laughs> see everybody again next week. Thank you. All the best. Bye-bye.